and our believers that are there today. Well, when all this happened Friday night at the movies, it stirred me up. Saturday morning over a cup of coffee and an old t-shirt, I kept thinking what we've planned for the weekend is just not appropriate. I just kept getting stirred. I, I, I don't hear voices. I didn't have an angel appear to me. I'm not, I'm not mystical. But I just felt uneasy. I just said, I just, you know, we planned this. I'm ready to go. This is Saturday morning. Five o'clock's coming. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? I just don't like this. So I ditched it, you know, and I just said, okay. So I spent the whole day, I didn't get to watch football, I spent the whole day with coffee and paper, taking notes, putting some thoughts down, then I had to get Judy to come in, that's her day off until church, and I says, we got to get this together and type it up. So it's not slick and it's not smooth, but I felt like it would be an appropriate word for this weekend and for day. Now it's not a popular message, but it is a Bible message, so I hope you'll bear with me. We've learned very, very well. And we've heard so many great messages about God's miracle working power, about God's healing power, about God's providing power, and about God's miraculous delivering power. But sometimes we just take it for granted as believers that God's going to heal every sickness, that God's going to meet every financial need, that God's going to open every prison door and put back every broken marriage. But I'm going to prove to you in a little bit right through the Bible an uncomfortable truth. Most often God does, but sometimes God doesn't heal. Sometimes God does not come through with a miracle. Sometimes God does not repair a broken home. Sometimes God does not provide a financial relief. And my question this morning, which is not so popular, but ought to be considered, what will you do if the answer from God is no? What will you do if the answer is no? What will you do if God does not choose, in your case, to deliver? What will you do if God does not heal? We've watched God heal tumors. We've watched people under an MRI come, pray for them, anoint them with oil. They go into surgery and the doctor can't find the tumor. We've seen some incredible turnarounds in people's health in dramatic and miraculous ways, but we've seen people die. So remember, keep balance and perspective with biblical truth. So I thought it would serve us well to take stock of all of our experiences in God, which are good, and say this, I know God can and usually does heal. I know God can put my home back together. I know God can provide my financial need. I know God can deliver me out of this mess. But if not, I'll still love Him, I'll still trust Him to know what's best, and I'll still serve Him. So I know God can, but if He doesn't, won't matter, I'm going to serve Him. He's God, I'm not. So our text comes from the book of Daniel this morning, and you've heard me preach it many times about the fourth man in the fire and the fact that he's still in the furnace just waiting for you when you go through your trial. Now, I've preached about the courage of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who gained the favor of God through their refusal to bow down to a golden idol even at the threat of death. And we've talked about the furnace that was designed to destroy actually becomes deliverance to these three Hebrew children. 
But at rereading that passage, three words jumped out at me that I never hear preached. It's a simple statement, just three words by these Hebrew boys, but it speaks volumes about the character of these three young men. They said, we know, O king, that our God is able to deliver us out of your furnace. We know that our God can send angels from heaven to bear us up and out of this crowd. We know that our God could kill each and every one of our persecutors if He so chose. We also know, O King, that the same God that opened the Red Sea and allowed our forefathers to walk across on dry ground can keep us from a measly fiery furnace. We know that our God is able, well able, to deliver us, O King. Oh, but by the way, if He chooses not to, but if not, that's my message. We'll still trust Him, and we still won't bow. And that statement was made before they knew what the outcome would be. It's easy after the outcome to say something, but they're making a declaration before they know what the consequences are going to be. For all they knew, they were speaking their final words. For all they knew, they were writing their own death sentences. For all they knew, they'd just wake up in glory. But it's as if these three men were saying, okay, King, in case we die in this furnace and we don't get a chance to tell you again, can we just make it crystal clear to you? We will never bow down to your graven image. We will never shrink back in fear because of your threat. We will never serve your gods. We will never forsake our experience. We will never turn our back on our God. We don't know what's going to happen in five minutes, O King. But let us say right now, we know our God is able. But if not, you'll have to suck it up. We are not going to bow down. We'd rather burn than bow. I don't know what tomorrow holds, O King. I don't know if God's going to heal me or not. I don't know if God's going to deliver me or not. I don't know if God's going to meet my financial need or not. I don't know if God's going to deliver me as a hostage or not. But just in case I don't get another chance to tell you, devil, let me say it one more time. I know God is able but I'll still worship Him. I know God can, but if He chooses not, I'll still serve Him. If I die in the furnace, it's okay. I'll just wake up shouting on the hills of glory. So one more time, I'll trust Him no matter what tomorrow homes. Now let me give you some proof. I, I pray we have the same dedication of a man in the Bible called Job. I mean, here's a guy the Bible says who loved God and hated evil. He had to be the most confused man on the earth. This is God's resume of Job. God said he's the best man in the earth. He was also a man well respected in his community. He was also the richest man in the east and the greatest man in the east. And the one to whom God records in scripture who speaks to Satan and says, have you considered my servant Job? He's the best guy I got on planet earth. And I imagine the devil said, well, no, but I will now. It's not always good when God brags on you, kind of brings the attention of the enemy. He's a poster child for godly life. He was a life that was perfect fulfillment of Deuteronomy 28, where God makes promises, if a person will hearken diligently to my commandments and do them, and I'm quoting now from the scripture in Deuteronomy 28. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, blessed shalt thou be in the field, blessed shall be the fruit of your body, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be your basket and your store, blessed shalt thou be when you come in, blessed shalt thou be when you go out. 
The Lord shall cause your enemies that rise up against you to be smitten before your face. They shall come out against you one way. They shall flee seven ways. The Lord shall command the blessing upon you in your storehouses and all that you set your hand to. And He shall bless you in the land which the Lord thy God gives you. Wow! That sounds great, doesn't it? And it's true. But in a few days, everything changes for Job. Without provocation, without any reason, without any change in Job's lifestyle. He didn't curse God. He didn't turn and worship false God. He wasn't filled with doubt and fear and unbelief and need psychological therapy for 42 years. He didn't backslide. Job was doing what was right, loving God, hating evil. And without warning, without apology, without explanation, his life was turned upside down in a day. In one day, the Sabaeans took his oxen. In one day, fire fell from heaven and consumed his flocks of sheep. The Chaldeans took his camels. In one day, a tornado destroyed the home where all of his children and spouses lived, and they were gone. His health failed him. His wife turned against him. His friends tried to encourage him by asking him what he had done to deserve this. I love that. Only a Christian comes up with that one. You don't want Christian counseling when you're going through hell. And I imagine all of us could read that and thought, Lord God, uh, forgive me for complaining. This is one day. I mean, it just gets worse and worse and worse. He's frustrated. He's a man. He's confused. He's angry. He's sarcastic. And every other emotion possibly you could expect from a man in his condition. But bear in mind, Job didn't have the benefit of a Bible. What happened to Job hadn't been recorded yet. We get the benefit of looking back and see what was going on. God didn't attack Job. God didn't hurt Job. God didn't make Job sick. Satan did. And God allowed it for his own purpose. You know, I think sometimes God just loves to kick the devil's teeth because he'll put somebody he trusts in a situation where he could deliver, he could heal, he could whatever, but they won't bow in the face of fear. And they, remember the devil said, well, God, if you'll just take his money and his 401k, and if you'll just take his health away, he won't serve you. He's only serving you because he's on more TV channels than other people, or his church is the biggest, or he has the most money. But if you take that, he won't love, trust, and serve you. And God says, I know this guy pretty good. Go ahead. You can take it all. You can't kill him, but you can touch him. Even Satan is restrained. Okay? And I'm simply saying, here's a guy that's done nothing wrong. And if you leave this out of the Bible, you're going to be in a quandary sometime when you can't explain what's going on. So in the midst of all this trial, here's what never changed about Job. Job 1 verse 22. In all of this, Job sinned not nor did he charge God foolishly with his mouth. I wonder why God has allowed this. Why doesn't God stop it? What have I done? See what you're doing? He knew God is not out to do me evil, ever. You forget we have an adversary. Are you so dignified in America you don't believe in demons and you don't believe in Satan? They're exposed all over the Bible. Jesus dealt with them every day. And all of a sudden, we think it's, you know, it's just, uh, I'm only dealing with human flesh. I'm sorry, we're at war. Good and evil, light and darkness, Satan and God. There is a, you weren't born into a playground, you were birthed into a battleground when you were born again. There's a war going on. You got to be tough. Stay vigilant. Stay on your game. And if this wasn't admirable enough, 
what really amazes me about Job's experience with God is he's scraping his boils one day. His soul is deeply troubled. He's got no comfort or encouragement from his friends. He's trying to figure out what's happened. Why has it happened? How long is it going to last? And his friends are miserable comforters. And the general topic of the conversation was, Job, doesn't it anger you God's not speaking right now to you? Doesn't it get your goat that God won't at least explain himself in his actions? Don't you ever get upset and question God, Job? And Job, you know, looked back and he said, gentlemen, I'm not going to lie to you. I'd love to speak to God. I'd love to be able to have counsel with the Almighty. You know, I don't know what could be worse than the situation I'm in unless God personally steps out of heaven, rides down here on a white horse, has a flaming sword in his hand, looks me in the eye and drives that sword right through my heart. And boys, just in case that's about to happen, and just in case I don't wake up this next morning and see the sun coming over the eastern horizon, let me say right now for the record, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Say, put that on your refrigerator when you're going through a storm. He said, I don't understand a thing going on. And Job hadn't done anything wrong. And somehow in our theology, I think we're getting just a little too sugar-coated sweet to think bad things can't happen to good people, obedient people, and occasionally they just do. I know God can turn any situation around today if He desires, but if He does not, I still trust Him. Here's another good illustration, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Messiah, and a relative. And bear in mind, in his resume, Jesus said, of those born of woman, there's not a greater than John the Baptist. How'd you like to have that on your resume? And he's in prison. He's the victim of a jealous woman with a Jezebel spirit, and sitting in a prison cell now, waiting to have his head removed and presented to Herod's wife on a silver charger, this forerunner of Messiah had some questions too. I'm sure he pondered his fate, and he thought, you know what? I've done everything I could for the Messiah. I've been a voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way. I've submitted to him and confessed he's greater than I am, that I am not the Messiah, but it is he who is to come. I've done everything right. Now, surely my relative and Messiah will come and break open these prison doors and deliver me out of this jail cell and this ISIS execution. And as he waits patiently, there's no telegram, no email. Nobody is dispatched from Jesus' entourage to say, don't, don't worry, he's coming. He didn't get wired any flowers. Nobody notified him they're having prayer meetings for you around Jerusalem. Don't worry, John. Nothing. Zip. Zero. So he sends his, his entourage of followers back to Messiah, back to Jesus. And they said uh, sarcastically, can you hear it? <clears throat> John sent us over to say, are you Messiah or should we put our trust in someone else? Can you feel that? Boy, that is a slap. That this is a man who's having trouble in a prison cell. And Jesus said, he didn't answer with a yes or no. He just says, hang around me for a while, boys. Then when you go back, you tell John what you've seen. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now what's most interesting here is what Jesus didn't say. 
because the passage to which Jesus is quoting is Isaiah 61, and John knew it very, very well. That the Messiah's purpose when He comes will be to preach the gospel to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, comfort those who mourn, and give a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And Jesus knew, John knew that passage well, and that part of Messiah's anointing was going to be, He will open the prison doors to them that are bound. And you can bet John was hanging on that scripture. And in essence, Jesus was saying to John through the disciples, John, you and I both know I can open those prison doors. We saw God do it for Peter, sent an angel, put everybody in a deep sleep, let him walk right out of the jail cell. We've seen God do miraculous deliverance. But John, can you accept what I'm about to do, or perhaps not do, blessed are you who are not offended in me. Because of what I choose to do in your life, blessed are you if you don't get offended in me. So can you take no for an answer and not be offended? Blessed is he who can sit in a prison cell and say, I know if Jesus wanted to, he could storm this prison like a one-man SWAT team and deliver me. But if not, I won't be offended. Hebrews 11, one more. This is a portfolio of faith. Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David also, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, verse 34, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the enemies, uh, armies of the enemies, women received their dead, raised to life again. Boy, if we just stopped right there, we could have a whoopee party. Yeah, we would all rejoice over that. But without pausing in this text, and without even beginning a new sentence, the writer of Hebrews says that within this same group of faithful believers and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were beheaded, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered around in sheepskins, goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And these all, both groups, obtained a great report through faith, received not the promise. Notice all of these people were great Christian believers. They all received a good report. They hadn't sinned, nor were they any less faithful. But while some had lion's mouth shut up, others were stoned. While some had their children brought back to life, others were executed. God is able to quench the violence of fire, but sometimes He chooses not to. God is able to turn the enemy to flight, but sometimes for His own purpose, He chooses not to. And blessed are we who are not offended in Him. You know, if I were a hostage, you can bet I'd be praying. You can bet I'd be praying imprecatory psalms, break the teeth of the wicked, O God. Those are scriptures, by the way. That's in your Bible, yes. The one with flowers on it, it's in there. Yeah. And 
I'm thinking I'd be hoping those who loved me would be aggressively praying and confessing God's Word as well. But if you think for one minute, it wouldn't cross my mind, God may not choose to deliver me. God may not. I mean, look at the apostles. These guys walked with the living Jesus. One was caught up into the third heaven. You talk about unusual life, and yet all of them, except John, were executed. Some beheaded, some crucified, some tortured. And you read through the New Testament, how come that's been left out of the charismatic Bible? Oh, shabba-baba-baba, yay, 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 wait till you get shot, yay, yay. (laughs) Say, oh, oh, I mean, this is real life. I'm a man of optimism, confidence, and faith. I'm very expectant that what God has been doing, God will do. But I'm aware, that's all I want you to know, I'm aware that sometimes He chooses not to, and the issue is, will you leave church, leave your faith, because God didn't do what you thought He ought to do? Or will you say, but if not, no matter. I'll still love Him, I'll still serve Him, I'll still help others. He is good, and He's good all the time, but I'm not God. And I I gave my life to Him, and I said, use it, so however He chooses to, that's fine with me. Many times in the absence of understanding, all you can do is trust God. That's it. I I know He's a good God. I know He loves me. I know He's righteous. So I never attribute bad to God. Hebrews 11, 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And that word faith here, at its core, its meaning in the Greek, it's pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, means confidence or trust. So the, that word faith says, in order to please God, I must have complete trust and confidence in him. It's like, God, I don't necessarily like this valley, but I'm trusting you through it. God, I don't like what's happening to me. I don't like this storm, but I'm trusting you in it. God, I don't like the trial I'm going through, and I'm trusting you through it. I refuse to quit or give up. That's the kind of faith that pleases God. It was little Esther who said, whew, get all the Israelites to pray for me. I'm going to perfume myself, get an oil of a lay bath, put on some, 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 some beautiful clothes, a little bit of cleavage. I'm going into the king uninvited. Oh, please, don't get religious on me. If if that was your husband and you could be killed if you weren't summoned with the scepter, you'd be be putting a little Chanel on and you, mm mm-hmm. Honey, you look hot tonight. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going in for my life. This is not a fashion show. This is life and death. And boy, when she walked in, whatever she looked like knocked him out. And he said, honey whatever you want to the half of my kingdom. And she told Mordecai, I'm going in to save a nation. There's a high probability I'll die. But if I perish, I perish. But I'll die for a greater cause than my own life and well-being. See, we, we love these people, but what made them great was the willingness to trust God even when it didn't go their way. Can you do that? You know, we don't pray the prayer, God, take me out of the valley. David prayed, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And whether you're in a fiery furnace or facing a firing squad or an ISIS beheading or you're being held hostage by a bunch of mad men, dog, terrorists, God says, I'm with you. 
I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And even as Job was attacked by Satan, God was right there watching over His own. His silence is not indicative of His absence. He's there. And that God is silent many times, but He's right there, ever-present, everywhere, all the time. You can't go anywhere. He is not. His presence is not. And if you're a believer, He's promised you on your worst day, I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. I will not leave you. You know, I know God, if you wanted to, you could get me out of this valley, out of this furnace, out of this prison cell, out of this trial. But if not, I will trust you implicitly, unequivocally, absolutely, with no reservation. Folks, death is inevitable. Life is unpredictable. The mortality rate is still 100 percent. Nobody gets out alive. I exercise three times a week, sometimes four, heavily. I take all these supplements, vitamins, liquid minerals. I drink barley green, wheat grass, and nasty stuff that just—I've been doing it for years. I'm a reasonably healthy person, but it has never failed to cross my mind. I can still die. I can still wake up and feel a lump. I I haven't lost my sanity. I'm well aware of my mortality, and you should be as well. Young people die too. Young people who were having fun, going to the club, going to the rock concert, didn't have a clue they were going to be a last day. Not a clue. You don't know in a club in this city, you don't know how your life can end in one day. I'm not a fatalist. I'm just a realist. Dr. Warren Wisby writes, since death is unavoidable and life is unpredictable, the only course we can safely take is to yield ourselves into the hands of God and walk by faith in His Word. We don't live by explanations. We live by His promises. We don't depend on luck, but on the providential working of a loving Father as we trust His promise and obey His will. So as people who have placed their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, We are not to fear death because Jesus rose from the dead. He says, now touch me, talk to me, feel me, look at my wounds. This is me. I was dead, and now I'm alive forevermore. And because I live, you're going to live also. Death is not the final verdict for a believer. You don't have to be afraid, even of an incurable disease or the gunshot of a terrorist. In Revelation 1, verse 17, Jesus said, don't be afraid. I am the Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end, the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and behold, now I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and hell. And because Jesus is alive, we live in Him. So I never look at life, nor should you, and say, ah, it's all meaningless. I close with this from Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear beloved brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you or cause you to fear. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know your labor in the Lord is never in vain. And the Bible says, what shall separate us from the love of our God? And He lists 
angels and principalities and death and tribulation. He says, nah, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. For more information on Summit Christian Center and Rick Godwin, visit SummitSA.com and connect with us on social media.